Hello everyone, my name is Michael Hickens, and welcome to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. So this is somewhat of an unconventional beginning, because I'm going to begin again after I have explained this beginning. Um, when I record these episodes, I start out by kind of giving people um, a sense of what's going to happen, like I'm going to introduce you, and then we're going to launch right in. Um, and this time, before I could do the introduction, um, we started talking about Ming's name and how she came to be Ming Holden. And I decided to keep it. And so what you hear is the unedited beginning of my discussion with the amazing, talented, and extremely charming Ming Holden. Like, oh, fuck. Um, so um, it's recording, but before we actually get started, um, I wanted to, so I, 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 um, I looked up, uh, your name, uh, Ming, because I just found it so um, beautiful. Um, and it has all of these awesome meanings, um, you know, Chinese, bright, like clear things you obviously know. Um, <laughs> I'm just curious, how did, how, you weren't born Ming, right? You you added that or were you I born? I kind of was. My, uh, my brother was two, almost three when I was born. Uh, and he called me Ming, and there are a couple of family lore stories about why. Um, one is that my dad, who's um, goofy with words, called me Mung Bean, because when you wrap a baby in a towel, it looks kind of like a bean. Um, another is that mom was maybe reading him um, Ricky Tiki Tavi, which has a mingling in it. Um, mm. We don't know because he was two. And did not know anything about cultural appropriation. He was a toddler. So um, when I got to college, there were three other Laurens on my hall because if you're a white woman born in America in the 1980s, the chances are that you are a Lauren, Sarah, Jessica, Katie, or Jenny. Um, so I just said, you know, my nickname is Ming and I always hated it because, you know, my brother calls me that. So of course I wouldn't like it, but um, why don't you call me Ming? And people loved it. And once they learned it and understood that I'm, uh, not Megan or May, they kind of started to play with it and call me, you know, Mingling and Mingling like Ding Dong and Ming Dynasty. Um, there's a whole plethora of nicknames. Um, my handle on social media is Minglish Muffin. So <laughs> I started doing all of that um, before really understanding um, what, for instance, like digital cultural appropriation might be. And um, recognizing that maybe, you know, contests that aren't blind that read the Ming might make assumptions about my background. And uh, that's how, I mean, that's how it came to be. I, I got my first publication um, accepted in, I think, 2006. And then um, it came out in 2007. So by the time I graduated from Brown, um, as an undergrad, I already had published with this name. And by then, everybody called me Ming. Um, so really it's interesting because the, the people who generally demand that I explain myself are, um, other white women who are interested in sort of policing what they believe to be, you know, um, appropriated behavior or whatnot. 
Um, so at this point, I'm, I, I wonder, I go back and forth. I don't really identify with Lauren. Nobody calls me that except my mother when I need to clean my room, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, that's the story. It's, it, it just, it stuck from when I was an infant and well, it's on my checks and stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a great story. And I know I said that it was before, you know, it was like, then I'm going to introduce you, but I feel like almost like I should keep that if that's okay with you. Um, because, um, you know, th th there's the usual pattern. Well, I mean, you actually, the usual pattern, you know, that usual because um, there's a lot to your bio, which I'm going to launch into right now. So uh, ah. Dr. Ming Holden is the author of Refuge, um, which was published by Core Press in 2018 and won the inaugural Core Press Memoir Award. She is the winner of Bellingham Review's 49th Parallel Poetry Award, the Chattahoochee Review's Lamar York Nonfiction Prize, and Glimmer Train's Family Matters Fiction Prize. She's written in just about every genre I can think of. She also has done photography, translation, which I guess that's also a literary genre. Um, her work has appeared in the, mess, the Best American Poetry blog, Hayden's Ferry Review, The Huffington Post, The Rumpus, um, and many other places. And she also co-founded and served as editor-in-chief of the Brown Literary Review, which shocks me because they didn't have one. Um, <laughs> and yeah. um, It shocked me too. Yeah. And Ming is also a voice in theater actor and director and activist. Um, an educator, a humanitarian aid development worker. Um, as Henry Luce Scholar in Mongolia, Dr. Holden served the Mongolia Writers Union as its first ever international relations advisor and worked towards the formation of a Mongolian pen center. She has since returned to Mongolia to work for the Asia Foundation and advocated for an exiled Chinese writer in Turkey at the inaugural Writers and Literary Translators International Congress, where she was the youngest presenter. So with all of that, phew, the um, eye roll is priceless. For those I, so, of you at home, Michael <laughs> just rolled his eyes. Um, there is um, almost no way to segue from that into a purely literary discussion because there's just so much there. Um, but you've done all of these things. Um, You've been, as your bio says, um, a humanitarian aid worker, um, and you have worked in literary translation, and you've been a writer and an actor and an educator. Um, and you are about to head off um, to Oregon. Mm -hmm. um, and when we were talking about scheduling this podcast, we were like, well, we should probably do it before you move, because then everything is going to be in, up, in an upheaval and mm -hmm. it won't be that easy to, to schedule. And then you'll be really busy because you're going to be starting a new gig. And because this podcast is really about writers and their gigs, um, and um, maybe I should make that the subtitle of, um, of the podcast, <laughs> Writers and Their Gigs, because it's, you know, so... Um, can you tell us what is this gig? Because it sounds really cool. Sure. Um, and it's funny because I got the gig through one of my colleagues in uh, my Henry Luce 
scholar cohort from 2007 to eight, when I was in Mongolia, Michael Solis was stationed in South Korea, but we were both doing human rights work. We had a lot in common and we were the same age. So we stayed close. Um, and I've done a lot of consultancies for him in his role in, at TROCRO, which is an international aid organization. So I think what happened is that a board member at his organization uh, was talking to him about his hobby of creative writing. Michael has, has written, I think, a fantasy trilogy as well as a memoir himself um, and successfully found an agent by himself. And he's just one of those renaissance brilliant men. And um, he ended up getting advised by this board member. I think she just said, I love your writing and I, and I have this friend and I think that you would be wonderful um, for, for collaborating with him on his memoir. And it turned out to be Wilson Smith, who's the first black designer at Nike and who worked with Andre Agassi and Serena Williams and Michael Jordan. Like he calls them MJ when we have our <laughs> Zoom discussions. But Michael is also sort of heading up a really important um, initiative over at Trokra and opening um, a hub in Nairobi for localization efforts, which we both feel really strongly about as development workers. So he can't do full time. And he brought me in to help coach and guide the process because he knew that I was moving to Portland. So the decision to move to Portland came during COVID. And then the gig came because I let my friends know that I was going to Portland. And the gig is continuing just because Wilson and I really get along and we love talking about stories and, um, and I'm, if I may say so, a pretty good teacher. So I'm pretty good at guiding someone into feeling safe and sharing their story. That's sort of what I've been doing no matter where I've been or what hat I'm wearing. So you're, you're kind of half ghostwriter, half writing coach. Yeah, we're calling it a writing consultancy. Okay. But I'm really excited about it. Um, he really, Wilson wants to reach um, especially young black innovators in America and his, his story really needs to be told. He's an extraordinary man um, with a, this amazing legacy at Nike. And, um, and it feels good to, to have happened upon a gig that touches so many of my values. You know, usually gigs are something that you do in order to afford making art in your off hours. Um, but this gig is, is making art in a way that feels really um, fulfilling and of, of the aims of social justice in general. So I feel really lucky. Question is, which comes first for you, the artist or the humanitarian aid worker? I would, as somebody who spent a, way too long in grad school, productively trouble the, the distinction you draw between humanitarian work and, and artwork, or um, you know, the idea that a literary conversation can be purely a literary conversation. You said at the top that this, is, this was never gonna be a purely literary conversation because my career includes different things, but the thing is the human rights kind of came out of working with writers and poets. Um, first, Vicky Adyon in Bolivia when I was still an undergraduate over the summer of 2005, and then meeting Tumanutsi Bayunmend, who was an inner Mongolian who had been exiled to Ulaanbaatar in, in outer or sovereign, the nation of Mongolia, for about three years um, waiting on his asylum decision from the UNHCR. So by the time I got out to Mongolia, he had already been there for three years and needed an advocate. And he needed an advocate specifically because he'd been a writer in China's state of Inner Mongolia in Hohut. And his wife and daughter were still there in, in, within Chinese borders. Um, and 
They had strip searched his wife at the border and she, they had been subject to a lot of human rights abuses. The authorities had come after his office and um, destroyed things there. So doing literary work has always to me been doing human rights work. The first advocacy I was part of, the first refugee advocacy that I did was for a writer who was exiled because of his writing. So for me, that distinction has always been particularly murky. Um, does that help answer? <laughs> well, it, yes, of course. Um, I, think, I think I'd maybe, sorry, add one thing, um, which is that the Henry Luce scholarship is really odd. It, um, it picks anybody under 30 who has um, an undergraduate degree and been nominated by the university from any field who seems to have a potential to be a leader in their chosen field. And my chosen field was always writing, but I was always doing this international work every time I wasn't in school. Um, and I think that started in 2001. Um, so I was still in high school and I did a summer home stay in Ecuador and the family that had me was fairly well to do. And I realized that I wasn't going to truly understand how a lot of Ecuadorians lived without asking my host family if they would allow me to have a little, you know, a little more, um, of an expansive observation of, of, of this new society that I was living in that summer. And my host mother said, oh, well, in that case, you're coming to work with me. You're just gonna come and watch me work. And um, it turned out that she was the executive director of the largest family planning organization in Ecuador. Um, they had like 26 field offices and I was going on field trips with the doctors. And they had put in the form as a host family that she worked at a chemical factory, which was not a lie. It just, they didn't want to, um, dissuade conservative American families from being comfortable sending their teenager to live with them. So um, she, she was not transparent with me about the nature of her work until I voiced this interest in sort of human rights. And then she said, oh, well, in that case. So it probably started then that I was really incontrovertibly interested in the sort of documentation of social justice issues using the arts, because by then I knew that I was really interested in creative writing and that English class was my jam. But by the time I was nominated for the Loose, which was a really interesting process because they have you go through a really rigorous series of interviews with some really intimidating people. Um, they're all very kind. They're just really on top of their game. And I remember in particular talking um, during the finalist process to th this uh, wonderful man with like a bow tie who uh, helped form Andy Warhol's museum for him. Um, and, and he sort of said like, what's your deal? <laughs> Why are you doing all this stuff when creative writing seems to be your interest? What do you think that you're going to do with that? How do you see your career going? And I said, you know, I, I have a set of interests. Um, they revolve around social justice, right? They're, they're a value set. And I have a set of skills. They revolve around people and art and stories. And I don't know how those two things are going to intersect over the course of my career, but I'm 22 and I don't think that I need to yet. <laughs> and he was like, good point. You're going to have a great life. Um, and, you know, I never saw him again, but I never forgot that conversation because I had never articulated to anybody else and sort of by extension to myself that that really was it, that I was always looking for intersections of like a social justice value set and um, a sort of markedly creative skill set. And that there's a lot to do there. So I kind of just fell into thing after thing. Um, I think at one point I called myself a development dilettante because there hasn't been a huge 
master plan. I've never had a five-year or 10-year plan beyond being in a three-year MFA program and then a six-year PhD program. That's, that's the longest I've ever planned. <laughs> I, I think that for not being a member of a Politburo, um, that's pretty good. <laughs> um, we, we, so when you were growing up, did you have uh, role models that you could see up close or, or from afar um, uh, inspirations, whether literary or, or otherwise? Um, I think probably the most important role model growing up uh, was my Aikido sensei, Tatacho Muhuwit, who um, is a Native American man from the Chumash tribe, where I'm from in Santa Barbara County. And he's um, a black belt, obviously a teacher, and also a Vietnam vet and a cancer survivor. So he's just an extraordinarily strong, amazing person. And I started taking Aikido lessons from him when I was super shy and still had braces, mainly because I was super shy, not because I had braces, but because I just was not at home in my body. I was a very shy kid. I didn't actually start raising my hand in class until college, until the second year of college. Um, and he kind of saw that I felt very inhibited and needed to be nurtured a lot. So he became an important sort of um, dad figure. And I kept visiting him and his family on the sustainable compound that they were building slowly since about two, 2001 or so. Um, and when I got back from uh, college in 2005 for Christmas, I visited him and he said, Ming, when are we writing our book? And I said, what, what book? And he said, well, I have a message for the universe and you need to write it because you're a writer. So we've been doing oral, hist oral history interviews, but at first it was just like pressing record on an actual cassette tape in 2006. Um, and we've been, you know, having those conversations ever since. And he's an extraordinary storyteller and helping him tell his story and, and thinking about how to get his story out there is also always not just a literary, but a human rights piece. Um, I'd have to say, yeah, Chacho is probably the most important influence um, on my childhood. And one that obviously is still an important figure in your life uh, today. Yes, I never really grew up. So I still, <laughs> I'm doing this podcast from my parents' living room. COVID hit within three months of my getting my doctorate. <laughs> so one week visit in March, 2020 turned into 15 months. And then I sort of um, went in my car on the West Coast to sort of feel out where I wanted to move. And a bunch of cousins and dear friends had moved from the Bay and Virginia and Seattle all to Portland for various reasons. So I figured out that I wanted to go to Portland. And then I came back just to visit and be here. My mom's birthday's on Saturday. I wanted to be here for that. And then, um, then I will finally go somewhere and start paying rent. By the way, so for because this is a podcast and people can't see you, I probably should tell people that you're 17 years old. Um, <laughs> you've accomplished so much no um i wish i'd oh if i could do things differently right now you know that's an interesting rabbit hole to go down what would you do differently um you know it's it's hard because when once you get a little bit of wisdom you realize that the best things in your life wouldn't have happened if what felt like the worst things hadn't happened yeah, you wish I wish that I had known how to help um, myself to love myself earlier. I think that's particularly hard for um, women and a lot of writers struggle with anxiety and depression, you know, in part because 
writing is a way to, to process harm that's been done or injustice in the world. Um, and it's also something you can do without being a terribly extroverted or, or socially brave person. Um, but it also means that um, writers are self-selectively sometimes the, the type to really take rejection hard and to seek a lot of external validation and that's sort of caught up in the whole submission circuit world. So it, it would have been wonderful to have the confidence to go ahead and tell bullies or anybody who said something mean-spirited out of jealousy or insecurity, you know, I'm me, take it or leave it. I like me, right? I, I, you know, I think I could say that in my 20s. I didn't know how to really live that or feel that. I definitely wouldn't wouldn't able to do that in my teens, and I'm not sure I could have done that in my 20s either. I'm honestly not... just getting to the point where I'm seeing that I don't do it every day now and correcting my thoughts around that, you know? Mm -hmm. People have been telling me to meditate for 20 years. I've known what I need to do. I'm just, you know, taking the long way around and um, having an extraordinarily long childhood. Um, I don't know if I mentioned, but, you know, I'm, I'm not only in my parents' house, I'm in their living room. I don't have a door. Right. <laughs> but I think it's important to be transparent about that because I was also able to write my, um, my next book project, which takes as a thread one, you know, my doctoral research, but the other two pieces I wrote while I was on lockdown, you know, in strict rural quarantine with two elderly boomer parents who had um, pre-existing conditions. And because I showed up a week before everything shut down, um, we just decided that I would stay until we had all gotten the vaccine and then decide what my next move was. And happily, I leapt toward Portland and this gig is catching me and I'm really grateful for that. But um, when it comes to how writers make it work, which is, I love that question and I'm so glad that you're exploring it with this podcast. Um, I was able to sleep in my parents' room for 15 months during a global pandemic. Not their room, their living room. Right. Um, <laughs> And that's a big deal, right? Like that's a form of privilege. That's a form of um, of good luck and good fortune, good timing. Um, and my parents had just moved to Santa Fe in 2017 and had this beautiful house that had room and three bathrooms, which turns out to be very important to diplomatic relations when <laughs> a millennial is living with two boomer parents. We each have a bathroom. And you know, you, you somewhat answered this, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Um, in terms of making it work, um, and you, you know, one of the things I find refreshing about your career is that you don't make this sort of artificial distinction between the humanitarian work, the literary work, the financial aspect of things. But I'm wondering, do you, um, and you said that you don't have a 10 year plan. So we've got, I, I kind of get that. I have a but, 10 day plan and just that is an improvement from COVID. <laughs> so um, do, you, do you anticipate that um, the writing, right now the writing seems to be working for you, but I, I, that's right now. Um, what, what happens next? Do you have a plan? Or do you think that, or, you know, the, the, the door will open when you need it? I've realized, you know, if, if I can take the 
the ball of lessons of being in one's 30s and kind of summarize it, it's that I can't be sure that there will always be something to catch me. And it is a form of privilege to assume that I can quote manifest and quote what I need in life. Um, a lot of my privilege comes from being a well-educated white woman with a strong command of the English language in America um, and a blue passport whenever I travel. But I've noticed that I'm a better person who does better work and is a better member of my community if I act like things happen for a reason, whether or not I know that to be true, right? Because things like faith, they're, they're faith because you can't prove it. I don't, I'll never be able to say, see, things happen for a reason. And it wasn't just chance um, or luck or a combination of those two things with a certain amount of, of skill and timing that I have. Um, but I do think that it's important to, to sort of, well, not be a dick, right? Like to, to not be an asshole. Um, sure. Like my spiritual life is, is, is thusly summarized, right? I, I take a walk every day with the dog. Um, my parents are a lapsed Episcopalian and um, a non-practicing Jew. And um, my mother's been married four times. I came along late in their lives. Um, I had a very bohemian and very um, progressive and liberal upbringing. My mom is a progressive educator. She taught me, you know, the, the earth prayer and sign language for um, school because uh, she was my teacher. <laughs> she, she has a master's in early childhood education. So there's children's books on the, on the shelves of this living room for my nephew who's seven. Um, I grew up in that kind of a household and I take walks to commune with whatever it is that's out there. Even if it's just that's the chance forces of the universe or not, you know or there's a spirit or a God out there, but it's beautiful. It's a desert canyon and I get to be there with my beautiful animal. And I made this little altar with rocks from the creek bed and I add to it almost every walk. And now it's this nice big um, altar that I can sit on and um, I record videos for my friends there to, to stay in com communication with my community. And um, <laughs> I was telling my friend who came to visit for my birthday at the end of September, I took her out to the altar and um, told her truthfully that during the worst of the worst of, of being traumatized by my events in my own life and then by COVID and, you know, we were all going through, going through it in 2020 and to a large extent we still are, um, that on the really bad days I would just make it out to the altar, put my forehead down on the rocks and say, please help me not to be an asshole. <laughs> I can swear on this podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because it all starts there. You know, I couldn't, um, all I could do was, was let my friends know that I was going to try and open a new chapter in Portland. And then um, a combination of, of luck and timing and also my skill set being clear to my community, especially Michael, who we, we've known each other for 15 years or something. Um, that's what led to this gig, right? And I'm hoping that this gig will lead to something else. I can't be certain, but I am skilled and I'm also privileged enough that I can hope to land on my feet and know that I have a social safety net to support me if I don't. Mm -hmm. And does the, so you've been, um, uh, you've been out there um, in various places that aren't very comfortable for an American to be. Um, and does that call to you? Do you expect that you'll be um, 
doing more of that kind of advocacy and humanitarian work? Um, or do you think, or, or would you, I mean, you may not know, but which would you, would you like to, or is it something you, would you like to, to do that work from more comfortable shores? <laughs> well, when I got the Henry Luce scholarship, they let you choose your top two or three countries in East Asia that you might want to work for the year. Um, so the way the scholarship works is that they pay your salary and you work for free for a company or organization or institution in that country. And I remember that the coordinator at the Asia Foundation who um, would go and do scouting trips for us to help us decide um, the spring before the fall we leave. So her name's Ardith and, and she calls me and she goes, so what are you thinking of? And I said, Mongolia. And she goes, Mongolia? Well, that's a keen place to go. I'm always trying to get scholars to consider going there. What put that on your radar? And actually the, the, the most truthful answer to that question is that I went to Tatato's house when I got the scholarship and we all sat, sat around and they laughed at me because my life to them is random and um, sort of silly and insane and um, like a fairy tale, you know, I would come home from expensive college and then now I get to go somewhere in Asia and like decide where I was going to be. And somebody made a joke, if we're talking about my nickname, about Ming and the Mongols, uh -huh. like Ming and Mongolia. Um, and so I'll, I'll never forget this because, because I was actually in my parents' living room then too. Um, I was a December uh, grad at, at Brown. I was 06.5. And so I was on my parents' couch. Um, and I opened up my mother's laptop, which I had borrowed, and typed in Mongolia into Wikipedia. And uh, I was like, wait a second, hold the phone. Like a post-Soviet landlocked socialist democracy sandwiched between Russia and China full of drunk Buddhist nomads? Like, <laughs> I want to know about this. And I want to know now because when I'm 40, when I'm 50, um, which at that time felt a long way away, um, I'm, I, I can go to Bangkok and it won't be as hard. So I chose to go to the hard places in my 20s because I could. And now it's like, you know, I've got um, an, an inflamed disc in my neck that's led to early arthritis. And so my, my days of staying in a super cheap hostel with 18 people who are themselves 18 years old are probably numbered. But I will say that until I must stay and pay the mortgage or take care of a child or honor my commitment to a marriage or something like that, I have no problem, especially if it's a gig between one and one week and, and six months, just going somewhere and doing something. You know, the world's kind of on fire. If, if, if someone wants my skill set and wants me to show up and I don't have a good excuse not to be there, I'll go. And so that kind of leads me like seamlessly to the next question I wanted to ask you, <laughs> which is how does being in those places impact your writing? I mean, is it harder to write because where's the desk and where's the, you know, where's the laptop? Um, or is it easier to write because there's no distractions when you're not working your ass off and, or is there no time to rest and therefore you don't write? Like what, what is it like to try to write in mm. those circumstances? Well, like I said, my mom was um, an attentive and progressive educator. And so she remembers things I don't about my childhood, especially about my aptitudes. And I guess when I was in third grade, that was the parent teacher conference where 
uh, my teacher said, you know, you have a writer. So I was encouraged to read and write because it was identified as a strength of mine uh, before I became conscious of a global community where a lot of people were in poverty and things sucked for a lot of people. Um, so that, I mean, I guess if, if it's a chicken and egg question, that came first. But it did mean also that by the time I got to Ecuador, almost a decade later, I was a journal person. Um, and I actually don't like keeping a journal unless I'm doing something interesting, like traveling and working abroad. <laughs> I'm not very good about saying like, dear diary, today I had falafel. Um, and I, I don't think that that's a strength of mine. I, I think that a more routinized existence, no matter where I am, is a mature way to go about things. And, um, you know, back to that, I know I should get up and meditate in the morning type, type thing. Um, I guess I, I'd want to... I'd want to just say that when I'm somewhere new, it's really inspiring. You know, it's, it's like having your heart broken or being in love. Everything's more vivid and it makes it easier to jot something down. And one thing I love about writing as, as one of these skill sets in the arts is that it's portable. <laughs> you can take it pretty much anywhere, um, much easier than you can take a boom mic or an expensive camera into a war zone or post-conflict zone or a slum. Um, I just, you know, would take at least a pen and a little journal and you can put that in your pocket, right? If it's a small enough little moleskin, you can take it wherever. I think that was part of the appeal as I got into human rights work and specifically realized that I was both able and willing to do certain things that are difficult and in hard places. I just identified that as a, as long as I am able and willing to do this, I should, because I think of it as sort of a moral imperative. Um, there are a lot of people who are either willing but not able or able but not willing, but as long as I'm both, I should go do these things. Um, and I could just always take a journal. It just wasn't that heavy and it wasn't that expensive and people don't really have an interest in stealing it, you know, unless you're, I, whatever, Salman Rushdie and, and, and his whole new novel is in there or something. It's just not, That's it's unlikely, not an object yeah. that pickpockets go for. Right. Yeah. Um, so do you think that writing can change the world? Do you think that your writing could change the world? Do you want your writing to change the world? Well, again, I don't see the distinction there that you do. Writing's been part of the world for thousands of years. Okay, I guess let me put it this way. Um, a lot of people think that if they raise awareness about genocide, it'll stop genocide, future genocides from happening. And we've kind of seen that that's not true. Right. It's a lot more complex than that. So writing is one of the forces at work in the world. I'm sure there are some things that it does that reinforce inequities that lead to things like genocide. I'm sure that some things that it does lead to creating awareness around issues that lead to some people making different decisions in the direction of social justice. But I have had to um, go ahead and accept that um, once you put a book out there, it does what it's going to do. And you can do, do some PR for it and sort of shill for it as much as possible. Um, but really, it, it's um, there's no one person who can do one thing that will make something as huge as toppling a government happen, right? That's been true since, at least since the birth of America. I mean, Thomas Paine wrote a pamphlet, but that's not the only thing, 
right? Mm -hmm. So writing is not the only thing. It, it doesn't do the only thing. There's not only one thing that it does. It's all more complex than that, unfortunately. So why, why, um, why do you write? Because it's always been what I love to do and what I'm good at. <laughs> mm -hmm. I remember another interview I had, as I said, it was a series of interviews for the loose was um, somebody said, well, if you're interested in documenting social justice issues, why don't you um, become, you know, a filmmaker? And since then, I've actually gotten more into things like film. But at the time, I said, well, that's not what I'm good at. And he burst out laughing. And I think that was probably when that that interview was clinched for me, because <laughs> it was very honest and very immediate. Um, and it may not have been um, the answer he even wanted to hear, but it was obviously the true one, right? And people do seem across the world to respond to genuineness. Um, we've been talking um, around refuge, um, but you also wrote something that you refer to as a nonfiction novella, which I really want to know what that is, called Survival Girls. <laughs> and in, in, in Survival Girls, it strikes me as kind of the perfect embodiment of what you said when you said writing is of the world, or I mean, basically the, the dichotomy that I'm suggesting doesn't really exist because, you know, from what I understand, Survival Girls is a theater you created. It is the people who embodied that theater. Um, it's a nonfiction novella, whatever that is, <laughs> which you'll explain. Um, <laughs> so please explain, talk about Survival Girls. Uh, the Survival Girls started out, um, again, it's it's a confluence of different chancy things. Somebody I met during that year in, Mon in Mongolia was named Michael Liddig. There's Michael Solis and Michael Liddig. Uh, Michael Liddig was uh, Fulbright in drama in Mongolia, and we stayed friends. And in my mid-20s, when I started the MFA program at Indiana, I had been in grad school for about two months, and he gave me a call just to check in and let me know what he was doing. And, um, and he was devoting his life savings to start something called the, the Great Globe Foundation. And he was going with his Fulbright connections um, because you need state clearance to go there into what was at the time the largest refugee camp on the planet, Dadaab, which is on the Kenya-Somalia border. Um, it's basically an open air prison. And um, last I checked, which was a couple of years ago, there were something like 500,000 people in a space that was meant for 80,000 and another 100,000 waiting to get in. Um, so he was going into the belly of the beast and he was bringing theater there to the people who most needed it in his opinion and in mine. So I just said, Michael, this is incredible. What can I do to help you? I'm a grad student now. So I could probably find one of those $2,000 grants for the summer. If I found one of those enough for airfare, you know, what, what, what could I do for you? Um, and he said immediately, writing, do what you do, and specifically women. I, I can't create the same space with women, especially women who have been traumatized by gender-based violence, which a lot of these refugees have, mm -hmm. that you can, right? Um, so I just applied for one of those grants and um, got it and went. I still had to, if we're going to talk also about transparency and finances, I still had to ask a couple of wealthy techie friends in Seattle if I could borrow a couple thousand dollars from them in order to live in a safe enough environment myself that I, I wouldn't be putting myself in danger um, in my home space. 
And that was important to being able to do this work with these women because it, it turned pretty immediately into a drama workshop. They asked to do drama because they're much more comfortable performing than writing. Some of them didn't know how to write. Most of them just were more comfortable doing drama. And they asked if we could do a drama. And I said, of course, this space is for you. And then within two weeks, they started talking about their actual experiences as victims of gender-based violence, which is huge. They usually don't talk about it at all because it's so taboo to be a victim of that kind of violence. And they don't want the men in their community to find out because then they might not be able to find a husband and they all wanted to have children someday. So it, it was huge. And I knew at the time that what was happening was pretty amazing. They were starting to create their own songs and scripts and props and I watched them over the course of those next four to six weeks recover from trauma by doing this work together. And there was a script and story was part of it. In this particular project, it was um, more important for that story to be embodied. And I got really interested that summer in how embodiment could speak to trauma recovery, which was why I decided to pursue a doctorate in something like a terminal degree in another field that wasn't creative writing where I already had a terminal degree by the end of my MFA program, excuse me. Um, so I knew that basically something amazing had happened. I wanted to tell people about it. I wanted people to have an example of the kind of strategy, the kind of open-ended um, socially sensitive strategy that development workers and humanitarian aid workers, arts workshop leaders, could implement in the classroom or in the, the workshop space. I mean, we were in a slum in Nairobi. It was just a dirty room in a church compound, right? So it wasn't a classroom. But I did employ the pedagogical tool of safe space, you know, that um, the female sexuality workshop at Brown that I took and also Romaine Rubinus Dorsey, who's an incredible educator of educators at Indiana University. She does the orientation week um, and then the semester long class after that for everybody in the grad cohort in the MFA program at Indiana. Um, and she's, she really got into it too, safe space, right? I had no idea if it would work. The last time I'd used it was for 15, 19 year olds in Indiana who were very quite safe and having the kind of first year of college experience you want everybody to have. These women were 13 to 25 years old. Um, they had been through unspeakable violence they had no particular reason to trust a white girl um, with the worst things that had ever happened to them. But the fact that they chose to really gave me a lot of faith in this creative writing classroom tool of safe space and the idea that what happens in workshops stays in workshop. Because once they adopted that and decided amongst themselves and agreed that it was true, they started feeling safe to share stories that they weren't going to recover from a certain depth of trauma without telling somehow. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to talk about all that. It seemed really important. Um, and I knew, I knew that I could write well. So I just thought, I'm gonna write about this. And then another sort of random chancy thing was that um, my elder half sister has a younger sister named Charlotte Austin in Seattle. Charlotte is herself an incredible writer um, and also just an amazing woman in her own right. She leads trips to Nepal. She routinely, you know, brings, middle-aged CEOs to Iceland or whatever. Um, she decided to start a little press called Wolfram out of Seattle with um, her business partner, Cielo Thompson. Um, it was a short-lived venture. They're both really um, active in a lot of sectors, but they did um, ask me to contribute to something called the Better Bombshell, which was an anthology of 
modern sort of modern feminism. They wanted to to talk more about um, about the 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 sort of the world women find themselves in, and the world's plural. Um, so Charlotte heard about my work with these girls, and I was writing my um, my third year thesis in um, in nonfiction, even though I was in the fiction program. Um, it's a nod to the length. It's a nod to the fact that my story was going to be kind of in pieces and um, and not the full story because I'm not one of those women. Um, it was sort of meant to nod to how we fictionalize everything in order to make sense of it, whether we want to or not, um, in order to, to make the messiness of human life into a coherent stream of meaning, we need to um, commit to a certain set of words that make a story, right? I'm very, I'm in the school of George Oppen. He said he can't distinguish meaning from narrative and I can't either. Um, so Charlotte just took a look at the writing I was doing about this and she said, what if Wolfram published your, your thesis? just as a fundraising effort, a one-time printing to see if we could help these girls get into school because that was most of their big dream. I did a set of interviews at the end of the project after their performance and, um, and most of them wanted to go to school and get a degree. So the nonfiction novella was my MFA thesis, cleaned up and edited. And the other thing that was really cool about the Better Bombshell was that they paired um, female identified um, writers with artists so the whole book is written and illustrated by women. Um, and I was paired with Jody Joldersma, who's an extraordinary artist in Seattle. And she did such breathtaking illustrations for our entry into the Better Bombshell anthology of the girls and of, of the sort of um, emotive experiences um, that they had, that I had, that were described in the book. Um, that that was part of why Charlotte and Ciolo said, you know, I really, you are making some magic here. The two of you as a pair, this is extraordinary work. So why don't we publish the whole thing? And is that a long enough answer for you? <laughs> I'm sorry. Fascinating answer. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't been able to talk about it in a while. My parents know all about it already. And they're the only people I, I talk to on the regular. <laughs> this is exciting. But that's, um, how, that's how the Survival Girls thing came to be. It was just an effort to help them get money for school. But, um, you know, it, it sort of helped, it helped me feel like, you know, I don't have to choose. I can always be doing interesting work and then writing well about it, you know, taking notes during and then writing after. It doesn't always need to be that agenda-y. There was obviously, um, th I, I think that at the time I was out there that first summer working with the girls, Jonathan Shell was, also um, sort of like haunting the UNHCR compound hmm. and um, living a very different kind of life with a very different kind of perspective than I was. Um, and he was the big deal writer. He was the one who would be able to um, land a big publishing contract and I think already had, right? And that's how a lot of people uh, get grown up gigs. They write a nonfiction book proposal. They turn in a sample chapter. They get paid to do it on the front end. Um, one of the ways that I've sort of utilized my privilege is that usually I start a project or a writing project um, before getting either full funding for it or any funding at all. And then by writing about it and adding to my story of what I do in the world in a personal statement or something like that, it leads to support and um, a lot of institutional support from Indiana and from Brown both.
Now, you, you know, um, you, you talk about uh, yourself as coming from a, a position of privilege because you're a white woman. Um, For the most part, yeah. Um, but you're also a woman in the United States, which is, I mean, there are worse places to be a woman in the world. Um, but United States is pretty bad in a lot of ways. I, I was going to say, I, I don't know about this being that much of a privilege. Um, mm. uh, as a writer, do you find, have you found um, that there are barriers for you that you might not have encountered were you a man? Oh, yeah. Um, my next book, um, the first extract of which is going to be published along with an author interview with Christina Marie Darling in Tupelo Press. Um, it's the, the working title is Netflix and Narcissists. Um, I actually ended up in an emotionally abusive relationship um, in 2018. Um, so I could not do the book tour that I wanted to um, for refuge in part because there was a restraining order involved. And later that year, um, a criminal arrest on two counts. Um, then Title IX took two years because this person had stalked me to my campus and gotten some kind of late admission to the history department's PhD program um, and insisted on staying there. Like he fought the restraining order, which gives you an idea of how necessary a restraining order was. Um, and Title IX did not do anything about it for two years. They're supposed to take care of these things within 30 to 60 days. And um, by the time we had the sort of um, the hearing with the officer, COVID was in full swing, it was July, 2020. The hearing was nine hours. I wasn't allowed to mention the, um, the restraining order, which was family court or the arrest, which was the local police because the hearing officer is supposed to make their own decision, right? But they're supposed to also have the same evidentiary standard as the judge who issued me the restraining order and the police detectives who arrested my ex for stalking and digital harassment. So I wasn't able to have the book tour. I was not able to finish teaching at UCSB. I had a 75% teaching contract for my last quarter. Instead, I took three or four quarters to finish, and I was not on campus, basically because um, my lawyer and other lawyers who were even more experienced than she was in the area of family court law took a look at my ex's you know, public court statement fighting the restraining order and said, you are in a lot of danger, and the law is not going to protect you, and Title IX probably won't either, because this is the same branch that decided Larry Nasser was not guilty of sexual misconduct in 2014. Larry Nasser, the guy who's mm -hmm. spending the rest of his life in prison because he molested hundreds, right, of um, co-ed athletes. So that's the kind of force I was up against. And Title IX did decide that I made up the stalking and that um, a reasonable person would not have been distressed by any of the behavior that secured me the restraining order and the arrest. So I was right up against how difficult it is to be a woman and how vilified we are for telling our stories. Long after the work with the survival girls and about violence that was not the same level 
of um, physical and traumatic, right? I'm so glad that MADE just came out because Stephanie Land is doing incredible work to educate the public about the effects of emotional violence on a woman, especially from an intimate partner. You know, the violence starts long before somebody gets hit or punched. And rather than treat me like my trauma didn't matter as much, which was something that I felt like the survival girls group members had the right to do, that's not how they felt at all. They were not comparing, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I got, I got blowback, of course, once I got to um, a PhD program in particular, people there, you know, love to hate on eat, pray, love, and love to shit on white people who do any kind of attempt to help anywhere, because it's, it's quite easy to shoot down, especially for armchair critics. So for me, I had early on to decide that the people, the, the subjects I was writing about, the, the refugees themselves, um, had to be the arbiters of that decision. Um, and so I always you know, offered to send them the essay before it was published. I, I would let them know during the project that I might write about it. Um, there was always a lot of transparency there um, and a willingness on my part to rescind and apologize and fix if ever there was a need. But the people themselves, the people in question were really excited that I was trying to tell their story. They were really grateful. And in particular, the women in the survival girls group did not respond to my trauma as though it were invalid or illegitimate because it was a different kind of abuse, right? This was an intimate partner live-in relationship. It was different than what happened to them in Congo during a civil war. And they never treated me like my story shouldn't be told, but my ex did. And in spite of the fact that I've been publishing narrative nonfiction about my life from the I perspective, right? Since my first publication in 2007, and that refuge had already come out and was about all this other work that I do. In the Title IX hearing, he contested that I was making up the danger of his behavior in order to promote my work and in order to get a book out of something that really wasn't that big a deal at all. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's hard to be a woman in America. There might be a time when this person with an established anger management problem, who is an aggressive attorney himself, might decide to show up at one of my readings. And because people who are in the space of reacting angrily don't have a premeditated um, idea of what they're gonna do, that's what makes it very dangerous for women in intimate partner situations. It's part of why most women who were murdered are murdered by intimate partners or ex-intimate partners. Um, so I don't know if I'm ever gonna be able to give a reading without a little bit of fear, but that doesn't make me special. It makes me a woman in America, right? And what kind of, what kind of things are available to a writer, um, what what have you? And I know that I, I'm trying to couch this uh, question carefully because I know that your book came out um, before COVID and in, in an extraordinary time for you personally. Um, and then COVID came along and you know made things more complicated. But um, what kind of things? And so you know, you're you're published by not one of the big five 
New York-based publishers. Um, and what's the relationship that you have with your publisher, just in terms of the working relationship? I mean, can you call up your editor at a moment's notice, or do you need to, you know, set up a conference call? And, um, you know, what kind of what kind of business things do you discuss, and 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 you know, what do you do, or can you do to kind of help promote your book? Well, almost everything, you know, for the independent literary presses, they really depend on the author themselves to do a lot of the publicity. And um, if I wanted to and could have hired a publicist, that would have been one thing, but I wasn't really in a position to afford that. I suddenly had court fees, right? Um, so I did, I, I wrote Huffington Post pieces. I shared a lot on the internet. I, um, I sort of kept soldiering forward with promotion of the book on social media in in public forums, even as um, my life was in a place of personal danger. Um, so I sort of had to tread that line of um, being a sort of public figure as an emerging author and also sort of taking care of my physical whereabouts and being a little more careful about that until um, the, the people around me who loved me and I were all relatively sure that the danger had passed, the immediate danger had passed. And I think that the, the most important and difficult conversations I had with my editors were, um, who were fantastic, Lisa and Anna Corey are wonderful. It's probably just about the due diligence piece because even if I changed names, the thing about working with marginalized populations and populations that are uh, physically in flux, like the refugee community, it wasn't always easy to reach them and ask for their permission. For instance, I think I was able to secure permission from five of the seven women in the survival girls group at the time of the publication of the book. Um, but one of them had chosen actually to return to Congo because that's how hard it is to be a refugee awaiting asylum in Nairobi. It is really not the end of your struggles at all. Um, and another had chosen not to stay in touch. And so the other women said, we think that she's in one of the Carolinas now. But that's all any of us know, and we are appropriately not allowed to know more unless she chooses so. So those, those pieces were harder because if you're going to face any kind of legal pushback, um, the, the small literary press is not going to be able to cover that. You know, they're always, um, they were scrambling for their budget before COVID hit. So now that COVID has hit, um, another piece of our relationship is that part of the Corey contract included a right of first refusal for any book I wrote in the next three years. And they did such a beautiful job with Refuge. I'm so proud of that book. I mean, it's, I love what's in it, but I also love how they um, arranged the typeface. I love the cover. Um, they made a beautiful object out of the book. Um, so I was thrilled at the prospect that I would have an excuse to send them more things, hmm. um, let alone be required to, you know? So um, when I realized that the three years were drawing to a close and that technically I had written this next book during that time, I sent it over, but with the understanding that COVID has changed everything for, for small presses and small presses that didn't get help from the government, or even if they did, you know, it's just, it's not the same market. And this year there aren't, it's not just that authors who are having books come out are having trouble doing Zoom tours, um, which are less amazing and invigorating mm -hmm. than being in a room with people. 
um, is also that the supply chain is starting to be affected and a lot of books won't be available um, in as widespread a way as they used to be. And that they won't, you know, the, the calendar for actual publication of the actual physical book is being pushed back. And so the whole thing, it's a free for all. Um, and for that reason, there's an understanding that Corey might not make a decision until closer to the winter. And to be honest, I, I would be happy to give them until early summer to make a decision about summer or, or all of the manuscripts. It's not, um, because I didn't expect it to be published, right? It's, it's formally innovative work. It's lyric graded essays. There was a chance none of it would see the light of day. But Tupelo Press is, is publishing the first extract with an author spotlight interview, and I couldn't be more excited about that. But the thing is, if you start out with innovative work, you know, like my, my people are like Forrest Gander, um, Brian Evanson, they're extraordinarily successful, but they didn't get that way with a big five contract. Mm -hmm. Their work is formally innovative, and so is mine. Um, I'm very much of the Therese Mailet, you know, like Lydia Yuknovich. Um, part of social justice work is taking apart um, narratives with a beginning, middle, and end, is making room for the experience of a marginalized or traumatized person by telling things in fragments. That whole, you know, it's another one of those, it is that purely literary work. Or can formally innovative work be a challenge to patriarchal structures, to the historical canon that's not very inclusive of other literatures, um, on, on the general definition of what literature is? These are not questions that really interest Random House. <laughs> so I remember I sent out queries to agents about this latest manuscript. Um, and I was allowed to do that under the, the contract with Corey. They didn't keep me from having representation or trying to find representation. Um, and everybody was really interested in the premise because suddenly we all want to know about trauma. And I basically got my PhD in trauma and then got a personal PhD in trauma at the same time. Um, so I had a lot to say about it. And um, I had been part of the writing world and could write well about it. And so they said, yeah, send, send us a sample, send us the whole thing. Um, and it was, it was really exciting to have agents who work with the big five um, interested. But I also sort of knew going into it that it's too formally innovative for somebody who doesn't have 25,000 followers on Twitter. So I think part of the reason I'm at peace with the fact that I've never, um, I've never been able to say my income comes completely from, for instance, refuge sales, is that I never expected it to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I wasn't writing a teenage vampire sex novel that I was really hoping FSG would pick up. You know, I was writing a formally innovative, nonfiction, challenging, both in form and content book about um, interpersonal violence and trauma. I mean, it's not everybody's bag. So I think um, it's both a privilege and also just sort of what I do to create the work first and have hope and faith that it may see the world, right? Right. And I mean, it's interesting um, a lot of people, and you know, it is the 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 main subject of, of this podcast is how people arrange their lives so they can write. Because I mean, no surprise, I'm sure, but um, I haven't spoken to anyone, um, and I've spoken to people who've written bestsellers, had 
books made into movies it still isn't enough to like live on right. um you have to do other things mm-hmm. um and i find that I mean, when i when i was coming up in the world as they say i mean the the received wisdom was you don't want to do anything that will sap your creative energies mm-hmm. um and so you're better off being working in the xerox room of a large law firm doing mind-numbing crap for eight hours a day and being treated like crap mm-hmm. um so then you can go to your cold water garret at night and 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 write um <laughs> And that never really seemed appealing to me. Um, and I feel like I'm too much <laughs> of not, I mean, I wouldn't consider myself a hedonist, but I like going out for dinner and I like being with friends and I like warmth. Um, and so I didn't do that. Um, and come to find that actually, if you do something that's intellectually stimulating and that you care about, it actually feeds your creative um, uh your 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 creative uh fire not dissipate it um and you clearly have things that you care about deeply that you've done that have also fueled your your creative fires while also being i i i hope that didn't sound as mercenary as it's you know (laughs) it's not intended to sound mercenary it's not like i feel like you know, you're doing humanitarian aid because it helps your work or your writing. But I feel like there's a synergy there. I've definitely fielded that accusation before, you know. Um, I think I wrote about it in Refuge, but um, one person in particular who I, I don't know if this person ever set foot outside of Houston where they got really good blowouts and, you know, had really fashionable clothes, um, except to go to Indiana with me uh, at one point told me I was using refugees to further my career and it turned her stomach, right? And um, like, there is a certain amount of truth to that. Like, like I remember that, I'm not, I'm gonna butcher his name possibly, but Carolis Guinteras, I think. Um, somebody I'd met at a, a summer writing conference uh, messaged me because I posted about it. And um, he said, you know, Ming, you could be a real estate agent, but then you'd just be using houses to further your career. If these people want to help you you become a writer who cares about the right things and writes um, meaningful stuff, it's okay to, you know, like position yourself. I, I was certainly aware that an interest in social justice issues and a track record in another sector than simply, um, publishing some poetry in a lit mag and calling it good made me a, an interesting person, right? Like to, to be talking to, to, to support financially if I'm applying for a grant. I mean, it's not like I left those achievements and those career decisions out of the personal statements and the CVs that I submit in order to hopefully go do more of that stuff and then create more writing about it. It's just it's a decision I had to make to just like tune out the people who were like, you know, white savior complex, blah, 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 blah. That will always be true. Like I will always be a white interloper, whatever else I may be um, in these situations. I will always not have the full story and not tell it perfectly. It will be problematic until there's not the inequity between 
the global south between black and brown bodies and bodies racialized as white um, until that's that's no longer true right like so i think of those arguments as and those accusations as a necessary part of sort of people becoming what's called woke um, i'm glad that they're um, examining white narratives that um, purport to be about helping or purport to help for ways that that might not be true or other things that those narratives might be doing. I mean, fundamentally, I did get my doctorate in the humanities. <laughs> it's my job um, to debate received knowledge um, insofar as, as I want to acknowledge that it's fundamentally genocidal to assume that any social practice has one arrow, has one function. And it's Tracy Morris at one at AWP in, I don't know, 2018, who pointed out that it's dehumanizing to assume that any social practice does have only one function. So it, it will be subject to criticism. My decisions will be subject to that because criticism will happen no matter what. And people will find functions and they'll point it out. And my hope is just that um, there's not direct harm done with my choices. But it's also to stay open to the notion that I may have inflicted harm I did not intend. And that's part of the journey of a white person in these conversations, right? So it's an ongoing process. I asked my guests this next question, and it's um, usually not quite as fraught as it is with you because, um, um, well, you'll see. The question is- No worries. If you hadn't had writing as a vocation, what would you have become or wanted to become? I think everybody who taught me high school expected that I would become an English teacher. You know, high school English lit. Is that allowed or is that part of the vocation? No, no, that's fine. Except that was that you would, I guess, you know, anything's allowed. <laughs> so, um, but. Is that something you would have wanted? In other words, did you ever dream of being an astronaut or a professional basketball player or um, uh, a policewoman? Isn't it marine biologist? Everybody wants to be a marine biologist when they're growing up. Um, I kid, I kid. <laughs> I, no, I think, I think I wanted to be a writer the whole time, you know? I. I'm not sure when our conscious mind really wires, but I was eight when my teacher told my parents that, you know, she's that you got, were a she likes it, she's good at it. She, yeah, like the, the thing is there. Right. Um, that, and I, I do kind of agree. And my last question is much more whimsical, if you will. <laughs> oh, good. What is your physical relationship to books? Like, do you dog ear them? Do you underline? Do you write in them? Do you smell them? Oh yes, the smelling is very important. Um, in fact, you know I, that might be the most um, surface-level concern I have for people with COVID. Um, mostly, I want them to survive and not be intubated. But like, you can't smell your food. You can't smell books. And you know, people, when when they're sick with it, often lose their sense of smell, and um, it's such a huge part of of sort of the daily erotics of being in a human body to, to smell things, especially good food with garlic in it and books and bacon. 
Um, <laughs> and books. And books. Um, my mom went to Swarthmore in the early 60s, and her college boyfriend was Daniel Menneker, who ended up heading up Random House um, and being a senior editor at The New Yorker for a number of years. And they didn't stay together because mom was terrified of New York City um, back then, and he knew that he wanted to go back to New York. But they were sort of each other's one that got away. They never really forgot each other. And so she would tell me stories and, and enjoy the telling of them. And Danny was this writer, and so I liked asking about him. Um, apparently, he, he told me once, may, may he rest in peace, he was one of the greats, um, that I, my mother and I are the only people who call him Danny, but that's just always how I heard about him. Um, and mom got to Swarthmore and didn't, uh, she got three C's and a D her first semester there. <laughs> I love it. She's a smart cookie, dude, but she just didn't um, know how to work. She didn't know how to read um, like a student, right? Like a scholar. Mm -hmm. um, she just, she was just so bright and observant that, that like that, that's what got her through high school. And so she, she gets to college and Danny's like, you can underline your books. She goes, no, I can't. He was like, they're yours. You can keep track of what's important to you about them. You can do things to them um, because you own them. <laughs> um, and I am a merciless underliner in dog year. I am I, like beyond what most people would find seemly. And there are these stacks of books, willy nilly. Um, the, the ones that I put on the floor next to me when I sit in the middle of that pile of magazine clippings and talk to Wilson Smith over in Portland about his memoir. So I can hold certain ones up as examples of things. Um, I, I'm not to get too wooey, but oh well. Um, I'm a Libra with a bunch of Sagittarius and absolutely no Virgo in her chart. There's, ab there's nothing type A or like um, organized about the way I do things. That's probably why I don't have a 10-year plan. And it's <laughs> probably also why I don't have a bedroom door right now. <laughs> and the 10-year plan you probably don't need and it'll probably spare you the disappointment of that 10 year plan not really coming to fruition because I, don't I think did love that all of us who were like, well, who knows? We're sort of rewarded by everything going into um, this melee. Uh, people wanted to know what I was gonna do with a theater doctorate. And I'm like, I don't exactly know. I applied on a lark. Uh, <laughs> like, the same way I applied for the loose was obviously changed my life. I keep mentioning it because it was, ultimately 15 months in Mongolia in my early 20s. Of course, it was going to be formative. <laughs> yeah. Like um, the, the idea that I was supposed to have prepared for, um, for entering the job market. And instead, I was like super fucking traumatized from emotional abuse from this ex who wouldn't leave me alone and really complicated the process of finishing my doctorate. And I didn't get to teach. And like I, I was a, I was just sad and tired at the end of my doctorate, and I did not know what I was going to do with myself in order to earn money. Um, and then for the next little bit, thanks to little stimulus payments, small gigs during COVID, and my parents' generosity, I did not have to know. And you know, like my loans did not go into repayment; they won't until the Biden administration says that they will. And it was this weird it's fucked up to say this, but it, that and getting to know my parents better and becoming better friends with them are the silver linings to me personally 
of this global emergency because the people who had made plans were not any better off. So it was almost a blessing not to have been super wedded to any one goal coming out of that PhD program. Well, um, I don't think I'm gonna cut this podcast very much because people will either listen or they won't. Um, nice. I, <laughs> I selfishly have had a fantastic time talking to you. You too. Um, I know that you're about to um, pack all of your tarot cards, collage projects, and paperbacks, <laughs> um, and throw them in the back of a car after your mom's birthday. And a 2005 Chevy Uplander. Um, I, I'm its third owner. I'm just hoping she'll make it to Portland. And, um, and that you're going to then take whatever time it needs um, you need to to settle in. Um, and so I'm I'm grateful that you took the time to do this with me because I, I realized that you have other things that you could have been doing. Um, I think that, um, you know, what, what you've experienced is going to be very interesting for other people who are writers, um, who think they might be writers, who will, I think, take enormous amount of inspiration from um, your career so far. And I, for one, um, just can't wait to see the next chapter. Thank you so very much. That's means a great deal for you to say at this juncture in my life. And it's also just been a, a super duper pleasure to digress with you. I'm Michael Hickens, and you've been listening to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. If you want to know more about me, please visit my website at www.michaelmissing.com.